This week's episode of The Cool Room is brought to you by... G'day everyone and welcome. Tony Shebecki from On The Turnbuckle here. We'd love you to join us and have a listen to our fantastic wrestling podcast. One of the best around actually. Been voted one of the best in Australia. So why not tune in and have a listen to us right here on The Turnbuckle. Hang on, hang on. What? Have you got everyone's name right? I'm Tony Shebecki. You're four ways. You're always your four. What about us? Brett Walsh. You are the worst. I'm gonna record. I should be recording this. Ad, no, not mate, you. I'm, I'm sick and tired of this. Finny, come out. Where I'm are out you of going? Here. I'm out of here. Now come back. It's no, on the Turnbuckle podcast. You can catch us on mypodcasthouse.com, I guess. Welcome everyone, and you're in the cool room. Uh, it's my pleasure, as David Griffiths, to welcome you here tonight for one of our many virtual Meet the Brewers sessions. And tonight we have La Seren joining us. Uh, we have Costa and we have Will, who I will introduce properly in a minute or two. First of all, I might just run through a few housekeeping things for people who are joining us either on Zoom or who are joining us via the podcast version later on. And if that's the case, thank you for doing so. Um, first of all, there's a few beers that will enhance your experience of this, particularly if you're listening to the podcast. Uh, it'll really make a difference if you can have a can of the Urban Pale, a bottle of the delicious Saison from La Serene, the Farmhouse Noir, and uh, if you're able to, if you've got one of the indulgence packs that we've home delivered this week, you might have one of the beginning as well. So make sure that you have those uh, chilli and a nice glass nearby that you can pour them into to enjoy this. Um, as I've said on other ones, editions of this, we don't expect people to drink all of the bottles straight away. Uh, that would be a fair amount of alcohol to consume in one sitting in one hour. So feel free to make yourself a little tasting paddle and share with your dogs, cats and others that I can see via Zoom. Welcome to all of the furry uh, friends of the, of the households. Or alternatively, if you're listening to the podcast version, um, feel free to pause after we've discussed uh, one of the beers and you can uh, enjoy that beer and come back and press play again as we move on to the next one. So we do want you to drink and enjoy those drinks uh, responsibly. So uh, there's a fair amount of fair amount of beers to enjoy there. Um, also, I just wanted to pause and say a big thank you to everyone who's been downloading the podcast lately. We've uh, had an enormous number of downloads and it's massively appreciated to everyone who's been interacting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you. If you haven't already done that, uh, please take the opportunity to follow us and La Serena as well on the social medias so that you can keep up to speed with all of the news. Uh, in addition to tonight's virtual meet the brewers, up there you'll find the ones that we've done recently with Venom and Bonehead. And uh, there are beer drinking packs that we can drop out to you for those ones so that you can enjoy those as well. Many other non-meet the brewers uh, episodes. Uh, so just this morning I was speaking to Kumar from uh, Deeds Brewing and about the fantastic beers that they're doing, but also about what it's like to be a rep. And uh, he and I caught up while he was still trying to be a rep. And so uh, I gave him some 
probably completely irrelevant life advice at that stage back in a past life. And we might touch on uh, tonight as we go along the first time that I met Will and Costa, which, as they reminded me, uh, was out at the Flimkin Bowls Club, which seems like a very, very uh, past life. Yes. Um, while I'm plugging things and talking about the virtual Meet the Brewers, next week's one is super exciting. Uh, we have uh, Brooks from Nomad joining us to talk about some of the beers that have been being made up in Nomad, uh, which includes a couple of collaboration beers that they've done with Rogue. So they've done an Australian version of the Hazelnut Brown with Wattle Seed. And they've done an Australian version of some Ale Farm Hazies as well. Uh, we not only have Brooks joining us, but I'm super excited to be able to announce tonight that Casper Tildman, who is the founder and CEO of Ale Farm over in Denmark, will be ringing in live or Zooming in live at 7 o'clock on Thursday night Australian time to join that discussion so that we'll have a comparison and discussion between Australian and Danish brewers uh, about the beers that they've been making, which is pretty awesome. And then the week after that, as I think uh, Travis has alluded to in previous conversations, we're going to have the team from Blackman's on uh, taking us through some of their single hop series and barrel farm sour series. So a pretty amazing lineup, but also for the, everyone who's received the packs of beers this week from La Serene, you will have a pretty awesome lineup of beers sitting in your fridge. People have been posting and sharing their fridge photos during the week. Uh, you won't often get your fridge looking as good as it is. So it's my uh, big pleasure to welcome formally Costa and Will, but also my co-host Travis. Travis, why don't you take us through the first bit of the conversation with the guys? Evening, David, and evening, Costa and Will. We are in for a pretty impressive night tonight, so thank you guys for, for joining us. Um, we, we're currently sitting here drinking the... The Urban, which is quite nice for those people that can't see on Zoom, obviously, and are listening. Take us through how this all came about. Start us off with, um, how did you guys create your brewery to begin with? Will, do you want to start and I'll, I'll fill the gaps? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, look, for us, um, and Costa will be able to you know, give you a lot more insight to this, but, you know, we're very uh, single-minded in the way that we, you know, make beer and, and the way that we talk about beer and the way that we uh, think about beer. So everything kind of really comes back to the location. So I think um, for us, we are, you know, um, a location-based brewery that expresses outwards from there. So 10 years ago, or roughly, roughly 10 years ago, uh, we chose a site or Costa found this site in Alfington, which is, uh, for those that don't know, located right on the Darabin Parklands. So there's a, about 180 acres of natural native parklands there that kind of wraps around the back of the brewery. Uh, this beautiful old building that was built in the 1940s. Um, and over, over the years, we've just really kind of allowed that space and the, the native uh, microflora to to do its work and and we're really trying to harness and express that kind of as purely as possible so um, yeah so I guess for us you know we, we call ourselves an urban farmhouse brewery and I guess what what that means is farmhouses as, as a style usually uh, you think of uh, sort of France and Belgium um, back in you know um, a few hundred years ago making these very distinct style beers that were all about 
their own location and their own fermentation profiles. So we, we've taken that into, I guess, expressing our, our own location in, in Alfington. So we make Alfington beers, we make um, hyper-local beers that express our site and everything we use from fermentation, um, well, especially in terms of fermentation, is really as local as possible and from the brewery itself. Um, so it's a real, yeah, it's a call of, uh, of passion to make beers that can't be replicated anywhere else. It's about not recipe-driven beers, but um, expression-driven beers, an expression that can't be uh, replicated because it's, it's a time and a place. So, um, Costa, elaborate, please. Wow, Will, I think you said it all, really. Um, yeah, I guess just to echo what Will said, uh, making beers with a sense of place was always... Um, my vision because I come from the wine world and uh, as a winemaker um, we're taught uh, to express the characteristics of the site and so I guess I took that from the wine world and infused it into beer making. Um, now some may call it uh, terroir, um, I don't really like to use this word because terroir is from terra meaning of the earth and we don't grow our own hops or anything like that. Uh, when we talk about, uh, I guess, terroir, we're, we're referring to our microbial diversity that lives here at the brewery. And I remember when we first came here 10 years ago and I walked into this big old shed and it's huge. It used to be an old ammunitions factory during, the, during World War II. So it's got a lot of history, this building. And uh, it's right next to the Darwin Parklands. And so when I first came in and saw the massive roller doors, I thought, wow, imagine opening those roller doors up and allowing the native flora to, to waft on in to help us make beer that expresses our, our location. So, you know, it's been a real privilege uh, to be able to uh, experiment with that. You know, and we started, as Will said, 10 years ago um, and making beers uh, that are wild fermented with native yeasts weren't exactly uh, the most popular thing on the market. Let's, uh, let's put it that way. Um, but for us, it was just an inner sort of obsession I had to, to make beer that, that just reflected this place and reflected the wonderful parkland next door. Um, and for us, it's, you know, as Will suggested, a lot of our beers are not recipe driven. Um, they're more technique driven. And I think it's more, I guess, my previous incarnation as a winemaker um, sort of playing out in the in the brewing world you know and it's funny because when I finished um, winemaking I went uh, to brewing school and it's funny because you know brewing school is very um, uh, intent on teaching you uh, very specific ways of doing things and I always I always sort of questioned that and thought hang on um, these are great um, uh, processes to implement but I sort of wanted to do it my own way to, to put my own spin on it um, and I wanted to just really embrace and honour our native, you know, microflora that, that lives here and, and, you know, it's all around us sort of right now. Um, and for us, you know, we have a, a very vibrant um, culture that's airborne and it's living here. And so for us, you know, I, I just saw the opportunity there to just really make amazing beers that are, that are really elegant and, uh, and very natural, I guess, to use a very overused word. Yeah, what, were you, what were you like as a student in beer school? As an ex-school teacher, I can just sort of imagine you being the troublesome one who, you know, yeah, every, well, time, every time the teacher said something, he said, no, 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 I, what about this, sir? 
I was definitely um, a challenging student, for sure, for sure. Um, I had my own ideas. <laughs> but um, it's quite funny. When I was in wine school, um, I remember I'd always skip classes. This is back in Adelaide because I studied at Roseworthy in the Wake Campus in Adelaide. And uh, I'd always skip classes and go to the bar and drink great international beers. And I didn't really understand my obsession with beer until later on in life. So I think I, you know, I got bitten by the beer bug early during winemaking um, and then decided to make the leap across um, just, you know, it was purely like a, like a passion move. I don't know. I just, I just felt compelled to, to come across and it's been an absolute rollercoaster of a ride ever since. <laughs> it's, um, it's quite interesting. I, I, for those out there listening to this, I actually went out and picked up a bunch of the beers that got delivered to all our listeners. And I've always had this vision in my head of, of how your brewery operates, but I, but seeing that that location where you guys are at was actually quite amazing because it was not it was not how I pictured it in my head. It wasn't um, the vision that I had in my head of how you guys brew and where you guys brew uh, was somewhat spun on a head a bit, and it was just amazing to see that location because it's such an amazing space yeah. out the back of the brewery and. You know, after we've we've done this, for anyone that gets out there to to check it out, I'd recommend it entirely because it's it's such a beautiful part of the world, and what you guys do in relation to your ingredients and that sort of thing is um quite amazing. And now seeing that brewery, it makes so much more sense to to yeah. see it sort of firsthand. So yeah, it's um yeah, quite quite amazing. So that's kind of brings us into something like the Urban Pale, where you know it's such a a unique beer. Um, how, what, how did this all come about? Uh, Will, do you want to take this one? <laughs> yeah, sure. I feel uh, like Costa's going to say, Will, God, do you want to like, take like, this one? I'm going to setting it up and then he knocks it over. Um, the Prime Minister just kept on referring to the Chief Health Minister. <laughs> <laughs> so look, the, the, urban, the urban came from, and I think I can say this, I think... Uh, you know, obviously for, for many years we've focused on, we've really been a Saison brewery. Uh, and in some ways the urban, you know, it has, has sort of a Saison backbone. But for a long time we are making these, you know, really um, site-specific uh, characteristic Saison and Saisons and, and a large range of Saisons in bottle only. And when we wanted to release a canned beer, I think um, Costa had just got back from America at the time. Um, and, I th- I, you know, there was this real passion for, you know, you know we, we'd never really been, we never really talked about hops. Hops was never, in, it wasn't really in our vernacular. And suddenly, uh, Costa was really inspired about hops. He'd been to America and seen some of the, the best breweries using hops over there in incredible ways. And, and we, we just wanted to release a beer that was, you know, um, accessible and and easy drinking and and something that you know in a can that's that's uh readily available and uh but still through the luster and lens so it still uses our house yeast uh which is a, a natural native culture of uh, uh our, you know our microflora and, and yeast from the area um with quite a lot of hops for us anyway so you know for us this is a real exploration into hops um and for us, it's a very hop-forward beer. It's probably the most hop-forward beer we, we do, uh, but still has that underlying lustering sort of yeast profile as well. So I guess it was, a, yeah, it was a new frontier for us, but we were really excited because it was, it was kind of a merging of um, a couple of different things, uh, which, we, which we enjoyed. 
And was um was the Urban your first can? Was there a can that came? Yes. No, that was, that was your first can? can? Yep. 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 And it was tying into the, I mean, we'd always considered ourselves a, a farmhouse style brewery, um, you know, but we are in this pocket in the middle of sort of metropolitan Melbourne. But as you said, until you actually go out to the site and you realise it really is this sort of really unique pocket in, you know, 15 minutes from the CBD, uh, but surrounded by, um, you know, all this, you know, incredible native, uh, you know, parklands. And if you ever, if you actually go down and walk around that area behind the brewery, it's just it's beautiful. It's really stunning. Um, so, yeah, so the, the urban was, was a real kind of um, coming together of two things and um, wanting to make a beer that was, you know, in a way being able to bleed into the mainstream a little bit uh, and pull people into the Lusterian world, uh, but still from, from very much from, from our point of view. So, um, so yeah, it's, a, it's one that I have in the fridge always. It is a staple of mine. That's quite a good story. Uh, I'm going to introduce now our other host for the evening, um, Warren Wu, who I'm hoping sitting there in his little room with a can of the Urban Pale in hand. I certainly am, yes. yes. Welcome, Warren. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hello. Good evening. Sorry for my tardiness. Uh, yeah. Sounds okay. like everyone's cracking straight in. That we have. We very good day, Warren. Have. How are you, mate? Oh, good day. For the podcast listeners, others, and yeah, feel free to talk amongst yourselves while Warren and us and others catch up. And Warren makes sure. <laughs> Warren's a bit worried about the, how his hair looks for the podcast, so yeah. Uh, we'll keep this into the edit just to clarify so people look up Warren on Facebook to check out his hair, shall we? Yeah, please. <laughs> so, yeah, so I uh, will just, um, I suppose that was the 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 history of the, the urban pale. I it was. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. what I was saying was the, the urban the, Yeah, go, the, go Yeah, the urban pale was um sort of one of those beers where um you know we'd be making Saisons and, and farmhouse and, and wild ales for so long. And I thought we're making these great beers. They're in these, you know, half champagne bottles, genuine champagne bottles for me of the fight champagne producers from every year on you um and i thought imagine taking one of our saisons and putting it into a just like a little can and just being able to crack it at the end of the day without a glass you know just something you don't have to really think about too much but you still want something really flavorful something that has a lot of uh you know character so um the urban pale was born i guess at some level purely out of a selfish reason to want to have a more approachable beer on hand mm. um, and uh, it's just been you know as we suggested a real exploration into uh, hops and uh, you know using hops in farmhouse sales so for us it's a bit of a new frontier um, and we think it works quite well because you get a lot of hop character but then you get a lot of useful characters to just to really support those hop characters so it ends up being a really laid and a, you know a very complex uh, beer which uh, I really dig yeah, and we, we're going to move on to the Saison pretty soon. I'm curious, Costa, was there a beer that made you go, was there a, a switch that was flicked in your head with a particular beer that made you go from wine to beer? What was no, the, no, no, no. I get asked this question a lot. Um, 
there was no epiphany beer or anything like that, unfortunately. I wish there was. Um, maybe I should just make one up. But no, make one up, yeah. no, there wasn't. Um, <laughs> I, I think I fell in love with farmhouse sales, and it was back in Adelaide um, in the late 90s, and I was drinking things like, uh, uh, you know, uh, Brasserie uh, Japon, um, Brasserie de la Seine, um, you know, these sorts of, you know, classic farmhouse beers, and I was just intrigued as to their their ability to sort of almost hit that line between wine and beer in terms of their complexity and their elegance. And I thought, wow, this is great for a beer. It's not what what I've been conditioned to think of as beer. So I was quite intrigued and I had my, my wine hat on and I thought, wow, these beers are, are almost bordering wine territory. And so I was just out of pure curiosity, um, came across them, loved them, uh, you know, sought out more and then slowly sort of very slowly I fell in love with the style and I fell in love with the style so much that I've started my own brewery around it and um, here we are. So funny, funny, funny times, funny how those things work out. Do you think that uh, farmhouse beers are particularly well suited to Adelaide? I ask for an Adelaide person who's, you know, listening in, but is that, Uh, I mean, that's half facetiously and half not facetiously. I think that's the bit about, um, farmhouse style anyway is that you know and for a long time the belgians sort of claimed that uh you know only these beers can be made from a certain location but i think the, the most exciting thing about you know brewing in in this this way and these techniques and using what's available locally microbially and in terms of fermentation is that yeah they can be made anywhere and they'll be different uh, in each location so i would yeah yeah i think i think um the potential for farmhouse style beers in any location is, uh, you know, maybe it will work in some locations, maybe it won't, but uh, definitely uh, I think there's, there's room for farmhouse in Adelaide for sure. I'm, I'm also from Adelaide, by the way, so anyone from Adelaide. I guess I mean more in terms of appreciation. Like was, was there, you know, actually more farmhouses in Adelaide, Costa, when you were sort of, you know. Well, there must have been. I didn't see any, but there must have been. <laughs> 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 but yeah. um, I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, just touching on that farmhouse thing. I mean, you know, we talk about being a producer that makes farmhouse sales. You know, and, and we sort of group farmhouse sales and wild ales and spontaneous sales all together as sort of one and the same here at Lusserin. And the reason being is, I mean, farmhouse is an official registered style of beer, um, but you won't find any beer that suits the guidelines in my brewery. Um, you know, because for us, farmhouse, you know, how can we sort of uh, put guidelines around what a wild beer should be? You know, to me, the ultimate way to define farmhouse and wild ales is to see how good it is at expressing its site, you know. And so for us, we talk about farmhouse, but what we're really talking about is just beers with a sense of place and wild ales in particular. In terms of that sense of place, uh, this could go for both of you. Um, because you are effectively the only guys really doing this with any intent in, in Australia and, and probably right wider than that in the Southern Hemisphere, does that make it difficult to kind of to see that difference? Um, to, to kind of really, to, to almost, not to justify, but yeah, just to simply reflect on that difference. So if you guys are the only ones, and obviously there's a difference to what they're doing in, in Lambic beers in Belgium, um, it, it, 
I mean, for, for does it take another Australian example before before you can start reflecting on that site? Is that is that something you guys thought about, or is that a? Um, look, I think I think it's you know it, it sort of comes back to you know you, you mentioned the the L word, the lambic word, um, and if you look at the the lambic producers and their history, you know, which goes back a long way, um, you know, they're all about using their natural yeasts that were within the brew in the surrounds. And I guess we follow suit. Um, I guess in terms of defining defining what we do, I guess this is more of a creative adventure for us more than a brewery. You know, and it's sort of a place where me, Will and the team get to play, you know, and uh, it's really, um, yeah, it's just, it's just a fun place to be because there's no sort of rules or boundaries that we have to stick to. Um, we can do what we feel intuitively is right to make the best beers we can that, again, you know, reflect our place. And there is a nice, uh, a really nice sense of satisfaction when we release, you know, all of our beers, but especially our, our really wild, wild beers that, you know, this beer can't be, can't be made anywhere else in the world. Like this beer is, you know, purely of the site. Um, and, and over the years we've seen through our barrel program, you know, the site character kind of showing itself over and over again, and but also evolving and morphing, and it's it's that, that's it's really that that's really fun. Like you know, seeing this sort of singular expression that can't can't be replicated anywhere else. You know, and that's 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 what I love about the style of brewing. Um, as a more little structural question, which Max asked earlier, are the hops that are used in in the Urban Pale? Um, it's really beautiful and fresh and bright and lots of lots of fruit characters um i'm assuming the hops are the follow suit along those lines oh, sorry I, I sort of missed a question uh the hops for the urban pale uh, we were yep. opening a bottle of saison weren't you guys so just to forewarn people where the conversation's going you can have a little think and open those while while you think about things yeah yeah so look we use classic um uh, American and New Zealand hops in the pale. We did a lot of trials and we wanted to choose hops that really um, supported and complemented our yeast profile. Can I just be rude and get out of the picture for a minute? I have to go turn a pump off for my brew over for a second. <laughs> sure thing. Can I, can I say, um, with the, if everyone's cracking their Saison, uh, this is a really interesting experiment. So I've just poured my Saison, but I've, I haven't. Um, I haven't roused the bottle, so you can see how clear that is. And I'm not sure if everyone has the same thing, but what what I tend to do because it is 100% bottle condition, there is you know a lot of natural yeast in it, which kind of forms at the and and uh, you know sits at the bottom of the bottle. So uh, the way I like to pour it, and it's great if you if you just want the clean beer, uh, pour it off and leave about a finger in the bottom. But I, I always prefer just to give it a bit of a swirl, and that way you can. Amazing. While um, will while while Costas run off to to turn off the pump. Um, <laughs> back. Uh, how busy are you guys? Are you guys because of the way you're brewing? Are you is the brewery effectively running as as it normally would this time of year, or pretty close to how it normally would? Uh, are you talking the COVID thing or? Yeah, the COVID, or primarily the COVID thing, yeah. Well, uh, look, it's, how, yeah it's, how it's sort of like a perfect storm because we have this 
you know, it's turbulent times now for everyone. No one's immune to it. So mm. we're definitely being impacted by it. But also we're coming into our winter, right? So yeah. <laughs> historically people uh, tend to drink, a, you know, less beer in winter. So, yeah, we're coming into a slower period without without question. But it's been great because it's given me the, the headspace to just start trawling through some of the barrels we have here. You know, behind me we've got uh, about 200 barrels at the moment and counting. And to be honest, there's barrels in here that I haven't tasted for years that I should probably get to. So um, it gives me a lot of time to just really uh, stick a nail in them and uh, taste them and see what they're up to and just see where they're going. So those barrels are real? We thought they might have been fake. Just for, you know. <laughs> Oh, no, look, I'll, I'll, yeah, no, no, they're real. So it's been fantastic the last couple of weeks in the virtual uh, Meet the Brewers. Uh, poor old Joel from Venom was sitting in a very cold shed the first week. Last week, the guys from Bonehead were sitting in front of a fire with an ice bucket to get their beer cold. Oh, lucky them. And uh, Costa, you're taking the cool room thing very literally this week? Oh, mate, it's freezing here. I mean, our brewery gets really cold. I mean, as you know, we're in Melbourne. You know, it's, uh, you know, the flux in weather is, is just, you know, imminent and especially coming into the winter. Our brewery gets down to about one degree sometimes when I walk in here. And I know that for a fact because we have um, temperature thermometers everywhere. Mm because I like to keep track of what temperature our barrels are exposed to in terms of high and low temperature. And so, so I tend before I tend to record that, and, and at the moment, I think it's about three degrees in here. So, yeah, fun. Thank you for enduring that for us. So before we move on to the Saison, Costa, when, when I picked up the beer the other day, you made mention of being in the brewery with, uh, with lights and the whole, whole thing. Like, did you, like, aren't the lights warming you up there, mate? No, mate. It's a, it's a. I've got a, a like a Bunnings light, like a workman's light, just so I can get some light for the camera. Uh, it looks dark here. It looks um, good. It looks great. And like, it's, okay. it's blinding me at the moment. <laughs> can, can I ask a, a quick question about the barrels, which because I'll probably you know not be able to get it in later on, which was that I had no idea until I went to a really interesting sort of barrel gin. Uh, degustation a few years ago about the idea of the barrels flexing as temperature changes and about how that yeah yeah definitely you know, definitely definitely you know and, and barrels you know barrels are amazing things I've always worked with barrels my whole life you know previously in wine um, you know you tend to work with the barrels a lot and you get to really understand barrels and so coming into my current existence here at La Serene, barrels were always on the equation in fact the first day we opened we had a barrel program so that's over 10 years old now wow. you know and so barrels were always going to be part of it and they always will be and barrels are amazing because um depending on the seasons they tend to expand and contract so obviously during the summer they tend to you know expand and during the winter they tend to contract and in that expansion contraction it draws out some of the flavor of the barrel it draws out some of the previous tenant of that barrel whether it's wine or beer, and it also leaches some tannin. And that's why we're really specific and fussy about what barrels we get, because barrels ain't barrels. Yes. And, um, you know, we're very specific. We only choose barrels from two different coopers in France. So all of our barrels are French oak only. We don't do American oak. We don't do bourbon or anything like that. It's just French oak. And it's only from two coopers in the south of France. Um, and I know these coopers and I know what their barrels give you know, from the winemaking days. So I just used that and thought, wow, I want to introduce some of their character into our beers just to really give it a bit of a backbone. So for us, barrels are, are very important and I'm super fussy about the barrels I take. Um, 
you know, and we take into account the, the previous tenant of that barrel, um, the age of the barrel, uh, the cooper, as you know, we only use two different coopers, um, and the condition of the barrel, you know, and it's really important to make sure that you get good condition barrels and make sure that the previous owner looked after the barrels because if not, um, they can tend to fall apart. And once they fall apart, they're not uh, watertight anymore and then they become furniture. <laughs> no use to me. The, the sort of the, the follow-up question was that in some of these, you know, up sort of around the Great Lakes and so forth, they experience probably the closest sort of weather conditions that Melbourne does in terms of four seasons in one day. So you mentioned there about how summer's different to winter, but Melbourne has that barrel fluctuation. Look, definitely, you know, and, and we're very lucky to be in Melbourne because, you know, because of that constant flux of cold and heat, it makes our barrels breathe and expand and contract. And in that expansion contraction, they just release more. So we get a lot of aging very quickly here at our site. And so, you know, I've got a, I've got beers and barrels that are one year old that taste like a three year old. Yeah. And I've got, you know, five year old barrels that taste older so you know it's it's you know we're quite fortunate because we can do barrel aged beers somewhat quickly but again we don't you know the, the average age of beer that we release from barrel is about three and a half years at the moment so we age it for three and a half years before we release it whether it's a single barrel blended um, that comes down to the final sort of part of the process but um yeah about three and a half years is our, is our average barrel release have you ever used new new barrels? Have you have you experimented with uh, new barrels as opposed to? Uh, we have experimented with new barrels. I've never been a fan of new barrels, even in the wine world. I just feel they leach too much tannin for my liking, and mm -hmm. so we tend to gravitate towards French oak only from two coopers and only from three different wineries here in Victoria. So it's very specific. And so we always want to get them with a few years of age on them and we let the winemakers wash off all of that, uh, you know, harsh tannin. Mm. And then we get it with, you know, where it's a bit softer and then we do what we have to do to it to, uh, to make it beer ready. Mm. Um, so we've all opened the Saison now. We've all... Have we done our done our swirl? Oh, sorry, we've all opened the saison except for Costa, who is now opening the saison. Uh, that I does. feel like I've we've all sort of hooked in. Um, the the, the next step in this is is telling us about this. I love the fact that you know everything about this says one hundred percent bottle fermented. It's yeah, you know, it fermented in the bottle. Yeah, you know, your bottles look amazing. Obviously, we all we all know that. But um, give us the the rundown on on, on the saison. Yeah, look, the saison uh, for us, and you know, has always been the true driver of our house year's character. So, uh, you know, taking the idea of saison and and a, and a and a farmhouse ale and what that's supposed to be, and really just expressing that from the brewery. So, you know, for me, this beer showcases our house yeast uh, better than a lot of our other beers. It really it is at the front and centre. Um, and also really shows and highlights the seasonal changes as well. So, uh, you know, from batch to batch, from summer to winter, you know, there's, there's, there's you know, changes. The recipe is the same, um, but through those seasonal drifts, we, we get some really, really interesting uh, flavour de developments. So, you know, beautiful kind of tart, um, 
Bruce and other characters, very, very sort of subtle malt, dry finish, um, very high carbonation. So we all are bottle um, beers. We, we tend to, you know, uh, carbonate on the higher side, which for me is, you know, again, accentuates that sort of food friendly, prickly mouthfeel. Um, yeah, the Saison, the Saison is really interesting. Like every time we brew a new Saison, I'm, I'm always so excited because uh, like there's so much kind of, uh, I can confirm that. Yeah, <laughs> there's so much. It's just it's such a like a, a blank canvas for what's going on at the brewery uh, and how you know the season's shifting. That it's you know you always know what to expect, but you know with a with a with a kind of like fluctuation. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a great beer, and it's one of the best food beers um, I know. You know, in terms of uh, you know, cutting through salt and fat. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a lovely beer. Yeah, which which kind of brings us to you know saisons are such a distinct sort of style of beer. In relation to this saison, tell the can you tell the listeners or divulge sort of uh, what are they what should they be tasting what what should be the thing that they're sort of looking for in the in the saison? Oh, in the saison, not food wise. In the saison, not food wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, look for us, you know, our house character and what we know. Um, for, for a lot of our, our beers and through our house yeast is we get some really beautiful deep citrus characters um, and this one showcases it beautifully so you get that tart kind of lemon orange um, sort of complex citrus notes uh, with a kind of slight you know a very sort of slight subtle earthy um, barnyard kind of character a uh, little bit of kind of a little bit of, sort of white pepper on the finish as well um, yeah, look, it's it's a complex beer, and I think the thing I like about it is that the the, the characters of from the malt to the yeast to the hops uh, blend in so, so beautifully. You kind of can't tell where one finishes and the other the other ends. It's really really integrated. Um, yeah, look, I mean, like the only thing I can add is you know when we make our saisons, they're made to be refreshing. You know, and if you look at the origins of where these beers were born, you know. Um, I just imagine, you know, you know, you're in the fields of Belgium, you know, 18, 1900s. You're working hard. It's a 40 degree day. You're about to have your lunch, which is just some crusty bread, I guess. Um, the last thing you want is something big and heavy to go with that. And so saisons, by their very nature, were, you know, were meant to be refreshing. And so for us, making the beer as refreshing as possible is our number one sort of objective when making this beer. Um, and I think a great Saison should reflect one site um, and embrace it wholeheartedly. And secondly, it should be super refreshing. And so if it's not super refreshing for me, it's not really honoring the origins of this style. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and it's a, it's a 6%, um, a 6% Saison. So it's, it's an incredible achievement to get that kind of balanced refreshment. Uh, in essentially quite a big beer, you know, like it is, it is a big beer, but the drinking experience is super refreshing, tart, lifted, the acid really cuts through, um, mm. especially when you're eating food. Like for me, the Saison, the Saison is great on its own, but with food, it just goes up to the next. Speaking of which, Will, what are we eating? Uh, at the moment, I have a, uh, a wooden, I've, I've got some uh, pickled cheese and uh, uh, no, sorry, pickled onion and cheese hors d'oeuvres, if you'd like to have one. 
Oh, nice. I would recommend that with the saison, although that would work. Um, for me, it's, uh, for me, it's like it's so versatile. Like it works with steak, it works with mussels, it works with pork, chicken, seafood. Like it's so it's incredibly versatile. I had a um I had a pine mushroom pizza, homemade pine mushroom pizza, and that's why I was drinking. That's why I knocked over the first half with it was um yeah it it feels really versatile from that yeah very much um you could you could see that Venice character the wine character when you have it with food um yeah, and absolutely. I'm absolutely I'm, yeah. I'm trying it now with piece of um it's a delice yeah just a oh, French that delice. Delice. Oh, yeah. that's an absolute favorite. we eat it here weekly. It works really well and you get you know like with with the lighter stuff with lighter burgundy styles wines which it also works with it makes sense that saisons that refreshing the same level of body and, and character um, well said Warren I, I endorse what you said brilliant oh, great <laughs> thanks Gosh. brilliant a really interesting experiment that's for people who don't sort of pair fun beers or wines with food very often I do at home. I remember we did this at Mr. Griffiths with just like literally a bowl of salty fries was to, to have half a beer before you started to eat and then to eat something like that and taste the same beer again and see how it affected your palate and how it changed your opinion of the beer or the wine. And it's incredible. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a really, when when people, particularly with wines, but I think in your case, it's very apt for the beer as well, sort of talk about beers or wines that accompany food. It's amazing once you actually start to experience that, you know, to see what it means. So if you've not done it before, great examples of, of beers to have a go with it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And the good thing about Saison is it does hold up to big flavours, like, you know, like a curry, you know, there's so much going on spice-wise, but the Saison cuts through. Um, or even as simple as just a plate of calamari and it just, it's mm. subtle enough to kind of work, but also add, you know, the citrusy kind of compliment. But it's really a margarita pizza or something like that. Mm. Um, Max has brought up when this, the beer's delicious, fresh, but in terms of aging um, and the potential to age something like the Saison or any of the beers, I suppose, we could just broaden out that. Yeah, look, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question because, um, there's a there's part of the community that um, that buy our beers to age, and what probably we need to uh, uh, communicate a bit more is that we do a lot of the aging for you. You know, like I said before, the average age of our beers released from barrel is three and a half years, so we've done a lot of that work for you. So if you ask me, our beers are best drunk within six weeks of release. Now, sometimes people can't get their hands on them that quick, but anything up to about 12 months and it's still tasting fresh and vibrant, after that, it takes a, a bit of a different journey. Now, some of those journeys are really complex and interesting and some may not be. So to me, I, I mean, they, they can be cellared and you will get a lot of age out of them because of you know, how they're bottle conditioned. Um, but they're really designed to be drunk young because we're doing the aging for you. Yeah. Hmm. That's a great point. I mean, it's, um, and it's a lot to do with storage as well. So if you have an amazing cellar at the right temperature, some of our bottled beers will age really, they'll, they'll develop some more complex notes and, and change into something different, which is quite pleasant. 
Um, but as Costa said, we've done so much of the aging at the brewery. Uh, we really like to think that they're, as soon as they hit the, the bottle shops and as soon as they hit the end consumer, that they're, they're good to go. They're good to go. Yeah. And, and, you know, part of the reason why, um, why a lot of our beers tend to hold up quite well in terms of age and travel. I mean, we send our beer to all corners of the globe, you know, everywhere from the US, Canada, Japan, and Europe and all that. And, and I'm really intrigued to get over there when I can and try the beers and see how they've traveled. And they tend to hold up quite well. And the reason being is because we do uh, 100% bottle conditioning. Now, I say that because this term bottle conditioning um, is a little bit gray in the industry. Um, there are some bigger players that uh, claim bottle conditioning. Um, and whilst they do a portion of bottle conditioning, they don't do a hundred percent bottle conditioning. What we do here at Lusterin is we bottle flat beer. So it's 100% bottle re-fermented. And what that gives us is like a natural protection. So it's a tertiary fermentation in most cases. And so what that means is it just, it ferments it to give the carbonation in the bottle. So it's similar to that. Have you seen that? that yogurt brand, I don't want to plug a yogurt brand, but it's called Jowner. And they claim yeah, that it's okay. You can plug whatever you like. <laughs> okay. Cool. And, um, and you know, they, they say it's pot set. Mm. Our beers in terms of bottle condition are a bit like that. You know, we, we let it, we let it ferment again in the bottle and that creates a carbonation, but it also creates a lot of protection because it tends to um, really stabilize the beer. And for us, it's wonderful because it gives you this amazing texture in terms of the carbonation. Uh, if you look at our, our, when you pour our Saison, it has a really fluffy head, but it, it, it tends to linger. It's quite clingy. And um, that's only as, as a result of 100% bottle conditioning. And it's the same process or a similar process that we do here that they do in Champagne in terms of Method Champenois. And so I took a, the Method Traditionnel and adapted it in a hybrid sort of way to suit what we do. And again, it's just part of my wine background sort of coming into what I'm doing now. So, you know, for me, you know, what, what intrigues me at the moment is working on how champagne producers can get that, that real fine bead in their champagnes and something mm. that I've always been quite obsessed with. And so bottle conditioning for us is um, something that has always been here, will always be here. And, you know, we've been, you know, we've, we've been through the ups and downs with it because it's a real learning curve, you know, and the reason why very few people do it is because it's hard to guarantee the consistency from batch to batch and bottle to bottle. Um, and we've had our ups and downs like anyone, but um, I think we've been fairly successful over the last 10 years in dialing in what, how we need to do it for our beers to get a really beautiful, creamy, sort of moussey head. Um, and I'm absolutely in love with it. You know, it's something that I'll never stop doing. It's uh, it's sort of a quest that I'm on to sort of even, even perfect it further if we can. So, uh, yeah. do, do you lie awake at night worrying about how they're going to come out or are you confident enough in the process now that, you know, it's all just, well, mechanical is yeah, not the right word, but... Yeah, no, look, it's, I mean, we, you know, a lot of our beers, like I said before, are, are more technique based in how we make them. So, yeah, we have specific techniques that we do for bottle conditioning to, to give us what we're looking for, you know, in the, in the end product. So it's great. You know, we, uh, you know, we tend to age the beer after conditioning for a period of time too, and that really helps. And so for us, we sort of trial many things for bottle conditioning, but it was sort of the one thing 
that I've always been super passionate about. And I, I'm just as passionate as I was when I started regarding bottle conditioning. It's something that I'll always uh, be involved in in some way, shape or form. I love it. Absolutely. Just from a technical point of view, um, is so there's an inoculation in there. Uh, if, do so once the beer is fermented to dry, you then inoculate and bottle. Is that in some cases, we're in, in some, in, in some okay. cases we do. Um, about half of our bottled products are, are like that, correct? Mm -hmm. But the other half are bottled before they finish fermentation. Sure. So we do two different types of bottle conditioning. We do the standard method traditional based mm -hmm. hybrid, which we sort of developed here over the years through trial and error. But we also do a petulant natural yep. uh, style of bottle conditioning. And that's an ancestral method of bottle conditioning that predates method champenois or method traditional. So for us, that's where we're doing a lot of our our, our work and our experimenting, and it's really fun. In fact, probably one of uh, the most renowned beers from us that you may know that's been uh, used with that technique is the Beer de Cerise. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to try that beer. But we, we bottled that beer before it finished ferment and let the fermentation finish in the bottle, um, you know, in a true petulant sort of way, and uh, it came out stunning, you know, absolutely stunning. And the beautiful thing about bottle condi conditioning is there's so much going on in there and so many complex reactions that, um, you know, it's not going to be something that I think we're going to figure out in my lifetime anyway. And I sort of dig that because it's a little bit of, you know, it's a little bit whimsical um, and you never know what you're going to get. Um, yeah, but it's great fun. Having, um, having just recently made a pet nap, is there? Oh, and I, I was, I was, I was dead. I have now. Uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, sphincter recoil. <laughs> Sorry, what? Re <laughs> sphincter recoil. That's when you're, you're you're just about to open the bottle, and you just <laughs> you stand back. Just you stand back a little bit. You hold and and you just you just worry for a moment before it opens and it turns out okay. But did you have right. that, <laughs> that for your, for the ones that, that are that uh, method ancestral, did you, did you, is, is it, because it's not your tr tested method, do you, do you, does that become a more nervous proposition? Are you... um, it, it, it probably did about six, seven years ago when we started doing it, but we've released, you know, 50 beers using that mm. technique and we tend to get fairly good repeatability from bottle to bottle, um, you're never going to get 100% repeatability because that's the uh, the you know the very nature of bottle conditioning and why very few people want to get involved in it. It's not a very commercial decision to do bottle conditioning, but like everything here at Lusserin, we didn't get into this for the commerciality of it. We got into it purely out of um, just a whimsical obsession, you know, into you know making you know artisan ales with a sense of place and time. And, and season. So, yeah, bottle conditioning and, and using the ancestral method, really cool. Um, I think we're still, I think it's the last frontier for, for that sort of fermentation. And I think very few people are doing it in the beer world. Uh, we've been doing it for about six years now and with great results, um, but it's still a big learning curve for everyone, you know. Um, you know, like even for us, you still learn every day. And, um, you know, for us, it's about really just trying to, trying to change one variable at a time and just see what happens. And, you know, that, that takes time. It takes time, money, energy. 
That's great fun. Yeah. I'm conscious that we're an hour into a one-hour podcast and oh. we've sort of got ourselves through two beers. There's no rush from our point of view, but, you know, let's yeah. perhaps start to sort of move our way onto the next ones. And having said that, I'm going to sidetrack things completely because, A, I'm enjoying the Saison, but I've got a bottle of the Saisonette, which is what I'm going to drink next just to be... Oh, wow. Oh, I love cool. the Saisonette. Oh, it's one of my favourite beers, the Saisonette. Yeah, so, so it's not on the it's not on the speaking list. That's not what people have in front of them. But tell me what I personally should be enjoying in the next half hour or so. Well, the Saisonette is... Um, it's a beer that we, we like, Costa and I love drinking this at the brewery. And, like, often after the, at the end of the day, after a busy day, responsibly, of course. It's, it's a true provision beer, you know, like, it's, it really is sort of based on that, that provision style saison, that, that low ABV, super refreshing, dry. It's got that sort of tart, um, tart citrus, tart screw, but, but really light, really dry. Almost champagne-like for uh, as a beer, and it's quaffable whilst also being you know, characterful. Um, so yeah, we, we drink a lot of it. Um, and one you know, of the things that I like about this one, and you know, saisons in general, is that, and this might be awful to hear in your ears, but I mean it very genuinely, is that I can drink them warm as well. So that sort of idea that you know, I think Oliver and I, when we used to sand tables at the bowls club could take a couple of big bottles out and, you know, you could have them outside for an hour or two. Yeah. Have a sip every now and again and not feel that you needed to drink them quickly because they were changing and enjoyable, you know, an hour after you'd say. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, the Saisonette especially would really open up when it's warm and becomes, I mean, all the floral kind of characters will come out when it's warm. Um, and become very, like cold, it's, when, it's, when it's really cold, it's, it's a very clean, very... Very, um, uh, very refreshing beer. We thought obviously all that house character, but but uh, in this very kind of dry, light, uh, sharp way. Um, but as it opens up, yeah, you get the, those floral kind of funky notes come out, which is. Um, I'm sure Oliver would say, you know, if you want to experience that, feel free to buy a couple of bottles of the delicious Saisonette and take them to the Flemkin Bowls Club and um, do some sanding of tables or... <laughs> you can't really appreciate the joy of that beer until you've worked really hard on a hot summer right. No, you're right. It's a perfect reward for toil. <laughs> it, is. it is. Yeah, look, it's something that we, we've always been obsessed with, that style of beer, that, that really, that provisional style. Like We've, we've done a, num a number of iterations of that in terms of the, the provision beer. <laughs> Uh, even our seasonal in Cannes is really like a, a contemporary kind of um, version of that. Uh, we, we love yeah, that. Great. We come back to that style. We come back to that because it's what we like drinking. And whether whether the market uh, is kind of takes it up straight away or not, I think we're 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 a bit, we're a bit selfish. Yeah, yeah, we don't care to be honest. Um, to be honest, um, we make beer for us, and hopefully the right people find it and align. And you know, those that that don't drink our styles of beer, well, eventually one day I'm sure they'll 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 stumble across the style, and hopefully they'll enjoy it. And then yeah. hopefully we keep them as a customer. Well, yeah. I've diverted things suitably. Um, Travis, get us back on track, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, David. It, uh, it all of a sudden became the uh, the David and Saisonette show there. So, <laughs> it's just on my shirt, which is fine. It's just saying that I get excited. It's just I love that beer. <laughs> so we've 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 obviously just come off the the saison. Um, 
I, I'm curious to know a couple of things. Obviously, we'll we'll move on to another beer in a second. But before we do that, um, how and I know we're sort of probably pressed for time at this point. How have you guys found the the positives and negatives of the current situation we all find ourselves in in relation to good old coronavirus? Will. Yeah, look, look, there's, um, there's a very easy answer. Uh, easy answers are good, man. Easy answers are the... I think, um, you know, I think initially it was a massive shock to everyone. It was just like this huge panic. Uh, and, you know, I think um, we've been fortunate to live in a country where we're fairly isolated and can kind of lock ourselves. So, you know, the actual, you know, the country's response... Uh, it, is quite we're in a we're in a good position so but as a brewery yeah initially you know like we were worried like everyone else but what it forces forces you to do is to and i think we cost us about this early is to reflect and then you kind of quickly have to adapt and and kind of evolve um but also kind of go back to your core values in a way so i think like for me when in that first week when it was full shutdown and I was at home not knowing what was going on. I think, you know, you sort of, you, you do go back into yourself and you do go back through your his, your own history and your work history and there's this great kind of period of reflection. Um, and I hope, I think everyone kind of, everyone I've spoken to sort of had a similar experience. And I mean, that's, that's only, only can be a good thing because it kind of drives new, uh, new measured thought and, and, and creation. So, uh, yeah, so for me, it's just been about reflection and and how that that kind of adds to we're going forward, really. Which is, Which is kind of amazing in the sense that I think within the Cool Room podcast, every time we sort of ask that question of people, we kind of get a few more positives than we do negatives out of it. Um, it makes people sort of reevaluate and and sort of look at things slightly differently. So. Yeah, I think. Uh, I just tell one story because, like, and, I, and I, I do love my job, but there was, you, you know, when you have a day off and you know you have a day off. He gives you one of those. Yeah, well, yeah, sometimes. Very rarely, but sometimes. <laughs> and then we have to uh, chain, chain to a barrel in the cool room somewhere. <laughs> but, um, but you know, when you know you have a day off and then your boss calls you and goes, can you come into work today regardless? And normally you're just like, oh, what? And there was the first day that Costa called me and I had a couple of days off and we weren't sure what was going on. And he called me and said, can you come into work like now? And it was supposed to be my day off and I was, I've never gotten the car faster. Like I, was so, I, was so, I was so keen to, I was just like, yes, yes, work. And it really um, puts that in perspective. Driving to work now is actually much more enjoyable than it ever has been because it's, uh, it's just, because yeah. there's no traffic and you can get there really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. It, it, does, it does put things in perspective a little bit. and You, you value what, what you have and what it means to you. But, uh, but also the traffic is phenomenal. It's yum. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of my key things getting up in the morning, going into the office and be able to get from Yarraville to South Melbourne in like 10 minutes. It's Jeez, that's like Melbourne 20 years ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But um, look, you know, just to reinforce what, what Will said, you know, uh, personally, it's given me and our family a chance to just sort of take a break and sit back and, you know, somewhat smell the roses yeah. um, and just really appreciate sort of where we're all at. And, 
you know, it's 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 great. It's given me more time with my barrels um, uninterrupted. And so I'm really enjoying this whole COVID thing at the moment, personally. Are your yeah. um are your barrels like your kids? You you take care of them, you nurture them, you Absolutely, like they aren't my first born or second born, but they're my the other hundred and ninety eight kids I've got, yeah. Do you worry about the old ones? Are there some that are getting towards the end of their useful lives and you No, no, no. Look, I'm I'm a firm believer that um, you know, we, we never throw barrels away. Barrels are immortal, if you ask me. And as long as you treat them with respect and look after them, um, I've never had to throw one out. So, yeah, I know many winemakers tend to, you know, go through barrels every season. Um, and I always thought that was just crazy. And so for me, you know, there's, you know, the barrels uh, tend to develop their own uh, flora and their own composition of flora. And once you get that flora right, um, as far as I'm concerned, it's somewhat eternal. Um, but then again, maybe we should do this podcast in the next 10 years and who knows? <laughs> I might <laughs> have thrown out a barrel. Who knows? <laughs> the only thing I'm certain about is uncertainty. <laughs> I think you know, we'd, we'd, I'd cleverly title this little segment sort of overseas slash coronavirus. And I guess it was sort of an invitation to sort of speak about you know, some of those overseas beers you like or even just places that you like. I mean, this is our justification to Josh Frydenberg as to why we need to travel overseas and drink in, you know, special places. You know, for, for both of you, we love to hear in the courtroom about, you know, magic places. They don't even have to be a pub or a brewery per se. Just places where you've sat and had a drink one day that always stays in your memory. Look, I mean, I, I had this, and I think when I first met Costa... Five, five and a half years ago, um, he asked me the same Has question. It's been that long. Jeez. It's been that long. I know. It, just, it seems like yesterday, isn't it? Um, and he, he, he actually asked me something. For me, I was, I was always really into booze and I loved, I loved my beer and my wine. And Barney, I agree. Great comment. But uh, what was that? Anyway. I agree uh, with Barney. Barney me, I, had, I had a moment in, in Brussels where I was traveling with a couple of friends. I was living in Scotland at the time and uh, a, a French mate of mine were at this bar and I, I was drinking just their kind of like house beer. And I said, can you recommend anything? And he gave me a bottle of Orval. Uh, and for me, that was such a light bulb moment. Like I remember standing at the bar got, thinking I've never tasted anything like this. This is amazing. Like it was... It was funky, but it was just delicious. And I think I sat at that bar and drank about seven of them. Um, <laughs> responsibly, of course. Mm. Responsibly, of course, yeah. Uh, exactly. it, was over, it was over at least two hours. Uh, <laughs> 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 and, and, knowing, and then knowing more about Oval, I love the history. I mean, the, I mean the Trappist beers uh, people think of as these old world beers, but you know, Oval uh, started making that in 1930. Uh, and they've only made that one beer. You know, they've only made that one beer since 1930. And it's just, for me, it's just like, I, I just, I love it. And it's like, I'll never go, I'll, I'll, I often buy it and, and try it again. And it's never quite as exciting as that first time. Because I've never tried it before. Mm. But that was this one moment in time, which just really kind of blew my mind in terms of what beer could be. Um, yeah, it's a great beer. Costa for you? Is there a, 
Um, look, I'm trying to think. I'm, I've had so many memorable drinking experiences, but yeah, um, rub it in. <laughs> but to be really boring, they've been here at the brewery. Um, whether that's you know our beers or someone else's beers, um, you know, you know, sitting here in the brewery amongst the barrels, cracking a beer that's been made either here or somewhere else, and it has some age on it, and it's really evolved. It's memorable, sort of every time, and. And so for us, you know, you know, I tend to gravitate towards beers that are spontaneously fermented. I really enjoy drinking those beers because that is how you can really, uh, you know, understand the person who made that and sort of what they're thinking, you know, and the person behind behind that beer. And that's sort of what intrigues me. Um, not the beer itself, but the stories, the people behind those beers. And so for, you know, I guess for me, it's not about just the beer, it's, everything associated with that beer and the experience and the, and, and, you know, the people, just, mm. just the people around this industry are, f- are phenomenal. So I can't give you a specific drinking story in that regard. I just have too many. It's, and they're all just blurred. <laughs> yeah. Good answer. Should. Well, not really, but it's an honest answer. <laughs> yeah. Should we, um, should we think about moving on? I've, I've, I don't know about anyone else. I've got one of those. Oh, right. Okay. Well, and for the benefit no, of no, all those just, people, yeah. <laughs> it's no, not like, a couple hundred people who are going to listen to rather than look at your screen. Yeah, you know? no, no. I was going to, I was going to, um, I was going to actually announce the, the title as opposed to just flashing it. It's good radio. It's always good radio or good podcasting. And never say flashing it for people who can't see what you're doing. <laughs> um, the goose Tilquin, the Tilquin goose. So, uh, yeah, I thought it might be an interesting insight. There's a, a, a different composition, obviously, but still um, has spontaneous ferment elements. Uh, the idea of blending different aged components is fascinating. I think it, it makes a connection with, with what you guys are doing in a lot of ways. <clears throat> so I thought that might be an interesting one. So if anyone's got that handy, that would be... I think we could have a look at that. Does that make sense with uh, both you guys, Will and Costa? I wish I had a bottle in front of oh, me, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, no, we don't have that in front of us, but we're happy to talk. We're happy to discuss it. Yeah, the Tilkin doesn't last very long here in this book. I think it consumed really well. That's that's probably one of my favourite uh, um, representations of that style, if you ask me. It's um, yeah, it just has a lot going on, and it's it's truly reflective of where it's made. Um, so yeah, in, yeah, in terms of the the yeah. idea of. Um, of it, in a lot of ways, uh, because of where they they source the warts and they and the beers to blend, um, does that is that an aspect that interests you in terms of these beers and where where they're going? And because they're kind of 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 this particular style, they're fairly new as far as I yeah yeah I think it's the newest uh, lambic style brewery uh, in Belgium yeah. It, yeah, with that, does is do you do you, because you guys are fairly new and probably but still have more, most likely more experience in a lot of ways than, than Tilquin do. Does um, look look. I don't know about that. I mean, I remember speaking to the guys when I was in Amsterdam last year at the Britannomyces Festival because I gave a talk there on uh, spontaneous brewing in Australia, and they're in the audience. Please tell me you all dress up like a cosplay sort of thing. 
Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Microbes. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, and I had a chat to the guys afterwards, and um, you know, I guess they're they're similar to us in the sense that you know we're all new to this, you know, to this style of beer, like in this part of the world. Even though you know Belgium's a heart, you know, the heartland, uh, the boys behind Tilken are, are still new new to the you know to that style of beer, and I think they're doing great great work with it. Personally, I think they're um, you know I think they're trying to balance that. That, that that really tricky thing of honouring tradition, mm. but also uh, making sure they make beers that people want. So I think they're doing very well at balancing that equation. Um, uh, where you know, if you look at sort of you know the cantons of the world, um, you know who started I think 1901 they may have started. Mm. But anyway, you know they're they're just deeply rooted in the tradition of of, of making beer. Where Tilkin are a little bit taking that tradition and you know, just sort of running with it, you know, because they're young guys. So I really respect what they're doing. And I think um, I think they're making some absolutely standout beers. Absolutely standout. Yeah. Yeah. I think for, you know, people who are wanting those sort of that different flavour as well, people who are lucky enough to get the indulgence packet uh, package, you know, will have the stout Rilquin and the Pinot Noir Lambic, you know, as well from looking and... They, you know, to go alongside the what the farmhouse and the funk, and you know that's going to be a, for those lucky six people, for whom I didn't keep those beers at home in my own lounge room. And same with the Jeff, selling that sixth, that sixth package that could have been mine. I, I must have missed mine in the post, David. Yeah, we were, we were <laughs> I don't know, Costa. Uh, you could have just taken it out, out an individual bottle out of each pack. Yeah, like <laughs> there's no there's no in there. But um, <laughs> like yeah, I mean that's why I, I thought the beginning was a great uh, a great comparison because in terms of that like through lambic, can I say lambic? You know, loosely it's obviously an appellation thing, but uh, you know the beginning of a you know a, a group style. Ship open top fermenting uh, beer, which I think side by side is a great comparison. Uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> indeed, and, and we'll kind of say something. It might be you, it might not be, but someone's microphone is doing things a little bit oddly. It could be Warren as he's wandering I think it's around. Warren. Yeah. yeah. Just, Warren, be good to your microphones and things. Yes, I just and our apologies to listeners if you've got a little bit of crackling for the last minute. I feel like part of that was Sorry. Warren getting up and getting another beer. Yeah, no, that totally was me getting up and getting up. And, and in the time, for those people that can't see this, obviously, because yeah, you're listening to it, Warren seems to get up and get another beer very quickly in comparison to the rest of us. <laughs> His bridge must be very close to where he's sitting. Mm. <laughs> why wouldn't it be? I don't understand why you wouldn't. And uh, there were so many beers, and I was thinking about trying so many of them tonight that that my beer is my fridge is completely full. Like I've I've there's there's a complete yeah. I need a beer fridge. I really do. I've got one of those, Warren, and it's still full. <laughs> that's that, oh, it's and. With this particular style, that's kind of the underlying problem because, you know, if you've got sessionals or regular ones, you can kind of move through them and then they stay average and you come back. But with something like, um, with something a little bit like this, and I found the same thing with wine, 
you, you want them in the fridge because you never know when that point is that you'll want to smash one. And unfortunately, yeah, it just, it, it, and you're not quite sure exactly what it is. So the beer I just stood up with and, and, and grabbed was the Noir because I think that would be also one that. Oh, Will can speak about that. Will bangs on about that beer. <laughs> He's uh, the one who suggested we should, we should all try it too. So I kind of feel like Will already uh, opened uh, it and poured it into his glass. Yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I've been drinking it for the last five minutes. <laughs> Uh, I'm having to talk about that. Are we still going? Uh, but if you want to talk about the Tilkin, no, let's go. No, let's finish that conversation. Yeah. By the way, Tilkin, amazing beer, amazing guys. And if they're listening, um, respect and look forward to seeing you next year at uh, in Amsterdam or oh, somewhere. Yeah. In and and the pretend you because know, I do a wrestling podcast as well. Is there anyone you disrespect you'd like to throw down to? Sorry, we, did you, you say know? a wrestling podcast? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> we, we do a wrestling video show I'll send you the links to that later on No, hold oh, We're getting into all of the territory here <laughs> Oh no <laughs> It's happening again Anyone um, you want to throw down to And just cause some issues that we can you know, Use to feed a bit of you know, Promo for the next six months or so oh, This is fantastic I reckon everyone else is frozen yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I think well, at least Costa has. Yeah, Costa's pretty freeze me, freeze me, but oh, he has frozen. Yeah, yeah, he has frozen. Uh, so now it's all on you, Will. Yeah, yeah, everything's on Will. You've got That's to say something nice. controversial. I'm do already. We the, do we talk at the, the noir or? Yeah, yeah what are you doing? Oh, we're going to go back into wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about the noir. I might. I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask if Costa gets back. I'll ask him about. Um, and ice is in uh, obvious yeah. particularly, and maybe and you'll be our help with that a little bit. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the noir. Look, the noir was something that uh, I mean, you know, for for many years, the noir was released maybe two years ago, uh, just under two years ago. Um, it was a real kind of. We never had a dark beer that was a true farmhouse style. We had the praline, uh, and we loved the praline. Um, and we just released it in, in can, by the way, everyone. So that's uh, the original praline. But um, look, you know, for us, uh, we wanted to we wanted to make one dark beer that was a true farmhouse style and a true Lusseren kind of fire style. So that's where it came from, and really, it, it sort of evolved from a saison recipe, like a saison kind of uh, idea with some some black paint and malt to give it that real kind of depth of color. Because if you look at it, it is a, almost a jet black. Um, so it's the, what, the thing I love the most about this beer is that it is is a bit of a mind bender. Mm. Uh, you pour it into the glass, you're expecting a, a rich kind of complex stout, um, and what you get is something very different. Like you get those complex malt notes and sort of coffee and chocolate, but there's this really lively sort of blueberry fig, um, sort of sharp acid forward kind of characters as well. So for for me, this is just like a it's just everything in the glass. Like there's so much going on. It's got your, your bright, fruity, acid-driven characters and your, your deep, complex malt characters and, and a bit of kind of wild barrel kind of in there as well. So it's a, for me, a, like a, a perfect beer. Um, and it's like unlike anything I've, I've really tried before. So love this beer. And it's taken a while for, I think, the, I think it's, it's taken a while for the, kind of the market to catch up. But like uh, this, this winter, uh, people are really digging it which I'm, I'm loving. So I think it, it's the kind of beer that takes uh, time to kind of get used to, but it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. What do you guys think? 
it is it's it is very much a mindfuck. There's a lot of there's a lot of head nodding and a lot of um yeah thumbs up for this. It is is completely a mindfuck. Exactly what you you say it is because you look at the color, you you give it a swirl, and it does have a touch of viscosity to it. Even that dark head on it all adds up to a pretty a pretty good old stout. Yeah, you you expect those those stout characters on the palate as soon as they hit that palate that bright fresh acid the the yeah that that real that real vibrancy in it comes it's just so, it's, it's there's so much going on and every time I've, I've had this beer many times now obviously but um every time i drink it i feel like there's another flavor profile that i'm picking up you know sometimes it's cola sometimes it's almond sometimes it's you know blueberries fig whatever but it's it's just this there's so much going on um and, and food, and again, food-wise, it's it's a great a great beer. You can you compare some really wacky stuff to this, which is which I love. Due to technical difficulties, this is the point in the show where the NBN decided that it would stop working for us, so we missed a little bit of the record. Uh, we'll pick this up now with Warren. The idea of um, the cold ship. Uh... So as far as I understand it, you guys have a you guys have a cold cold ship in a cool ship, yeah. A cool ship, sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, no, we were um I think we were the first in the country to get a cool ship. Uh we, we didn't release one until quite recently, but we, we had one um custom made for us, uh with and Costa's I, I wish you'd come back because he's very, very passionate about the cool ship. Uh but we, we had one custom made to very specific parameters. Uh, because we knew that this was from day one, Costa wanted to harness as much of the local microflora as possible, and the cool ship was always the kind of, I guess, the ideal vessel to do that. Because explain to the kids at home. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, what they, what yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, if you think about, we all know that you basically bought the cutty sark and parked it at the back of the brewery. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, we've been, we've been. Um, spontaneously brewing for a number of years in like dairy vessels and other like open top vessels. Um, but the cool ship is a very specific kind of open top fermented vessel. So basically, you know, if you imagine a, an above ground swimming pool, uh, made of stainless steel, uh, some of the traditional ones were made in copper, but ours is stainless steel. Um, and you know, it's really only, you know, it's only about this deep, but quite, quite large. Uh, we can fit, you know, we do about 2,000 litres at a time, um, very large surface area. So on a cold, and, and this is something we do in winter, because it's all about naturally cooling the, the wort, uh, which goes in at, you know, close to 100 degrees, uh, and cooling that down as rapidly as possible over, a, over about, a, you know, well, up to a 24-hour period um, to ambient temperature to then go to barrel. So... This vessel with a huge surface area and our brewery with these roller doors, uh, and we've actually attached um, the the cool ship on top of a, a shipping container, which has a, a wooden housing. Um, did you guys see it when you were there? There's a wooden housing over the top, and and we can actually flush all the kind of air that comes in from the the parklands directly over that cool ship. So that that hot hot steaming work cools down rapidly, but also sucks in. A huge amount of of uh, you know of that those microbes and starts inoculating the beer very quickly, and you can't get that from um, 
yeah, it's, it's really a very interesting process. And you can put beer straight to barrel and it will start fermenting, but it will take months and months and months. Um, but if you use a cool ship, it's this real rapid form of inoculation. There's, there's, there's pictures from in, there's Lambic beers where, and, and cool ships from Belgium where you see like these small windows which have been opened ajar over the top of their cool ship to suck in air. The idea of you guys being able to actually open the garage door and just open yeah. the whole thing. Well, I mean, there's, you know, we do time it. So we, we know like, you know, Costa will actually, especially in the middle of winter, like as like now it's kind of, we're coming into the right season. So we can actually gauge when the wind's coming from the parklands as opposed to the other side. So, mm. so when we know the wind's coming from the parklands and we know that the temperature overnight is low enough and the wind speed's the right, the right speed, um, we know that we can do a, a successful cool ship because uh, it's all really about getting that temperature down quickly, but also, you know, harnessing that wind that's coming directly over, you know, a huge parkland. Um, so all that's just getting sucked into, into the beer. That's yeah. That's that's the mind blowing. That's the fascinating bit for me because there's yeah. I don't. Can you think of anyone else? I know like like um, little creatures guys. When when White Rabbit opened, they were spouting about about wild ferment, but effectively it was in a sterile. They 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 were fermenting in a sterile room, um, in stainless steel tanks. So this whole wild ferment. But even though, even though technically they were in one of the most perfect places to try the cool ship idea in the Yarra Valley, you know, Yarra Valley, surrounded by nature. Yeah. Yep. Um, with oh, now I've just lost the, my track of that question. But with you guys, with with the idea that you're you're capturing a piece of of um Elfington. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in that, it must be. Yeah, it must really blow your mind I, I can understand why costa costa really gets get, gets excited about that um yeah yeah look, look yeah and look that's that is the most exciting part and when when costa was talking about you asked him his favorite beer and he was talked about just tasting his barrels you know that that's my favorite part of my job is once a once a month we'll you know we'll go around we'll taste all the barrels and and um and it really is, you know, it really is a very tactile, um, exploratory kind of um, inst instinctive. I mean, Costa, the knowledge Costa have is, has is incredible. Uh, but, you know, there's this real kind of just react, reaction to what's going on. And, and as we go through and taste all the barrels, you know, we, we, we make decisions from there or he makes decisions and we discuss sort of, you know, like, do we blend? Do we... I mean, single barrel expression has always been something we're passionate about, but, you know, sometimes blending can be exciting. Sometimes fruit additions can be exciting. Um, but the, the common thread is also the ongoing development of the house kind of, you know, um, uh, characteristics. So uh, our barrel-aged beers, you know, change over seasons and change from year to year, but there's this real kind of consistent theme that happens and, we, and we're just so lucky to be in that spot because it's... Every time we crack a barrel, uh, we we kind of had this moment of, ah, oh, it's yeah, that's that's La Serene, that's that's Alfington, um, but different each time. So it's just 
it's a very interesting journey. I, um, I think we're going to take a question from one of our, our listeners now, um, which is quite an amazing question. So, Max, do you want to take it away? Sure. Hi. Um, thanks a lot, guys. I'm really enjoying the, um, the chat. Um, I'm just, the question sort of comes from um, being a bit of a home brewer and sort of knowing a little bit about how um, about beer works in a sort of pretty basic way. And one of the first things you learn about is just how important it is to keep things sterile and how much that kind of impacts your, um, your basic yeah. kind of quality. In terms of wild ales and looking at spontaneous fermentation, how do you kind of balance those two things? Like you want to obviously get some wild yeast in there, but how do you find a balance between wanting some wild stuff in there, but also keeping things clean and sterile enough? And what's the kind of link between those two things? Well, I mean, we, we have, uh, our, our brewery is sort of split almost into two. Uh, we have our kind of our clean side and our, our wild side. So the, the barrels are all on one side with our open fermenters and uh, our, our clean kind of fermenting tanks and, and the, the, you know, the mashings on one side as well. So, um, you know, being, being a rustic space and being a space which is constantly flooded with, you know, it's not a, it's not a hermetically sealed uh, brewery. Um, you know, we have a pretty, pretty rigorous cleaning regime. So, you know, we hot wash and do a lot of, a lot of cleaning in, in, in the clean side. But in terms of the, the wild side, that's more just sort of managing over time. So it's more of a time thing. It's more of an understanding of what barrels do uh, and the way it reacts with, you know, the liquid inside them. So, you know, Costa's very au fait with that, that time frame, and we've learned to uh, give them the time they need, I guess. And I think one of the biggest things with barrel aging beers is just giving them that time to naturally develop. Because it, I don't know if you've if you've done your barrel aging yourself, but like you know, when, when you put a beer to barrel, uh, you know, in in two or three months' time, it could taste horrible, and six months' time, it could taste horrible. Um, or, or maybe just not what you thought, but then over, over time it, it, and you know, you, you know, you've got those again, depending on what barrels you have and what the liquid is, but you know, you've got this sort of, uh, microcosm of, of, uh, um, bacteria and yeast sort of fighting and, and doing their thing and all contributing their own, their own unique character over time. And eventually, and we, we find that after about 12 months, you start to see, light so 12 months for us is a bit of a benchmark for when we put stuff to barrel it's like let's not taste it for 12 months let's just put it in barrel and leave it for 12 months because we know that there's going to be a period where it's going to be up and down there's going to be a whole lot of stuff going on um so for, for us it's a lot of to do with patience <laughs> but also being I, I don't know i think i think just really lucky where we are i think the the you know the the kind of uh, microflora that exists at our brewery is 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 really healthy, um, and and really contributes some positive stuff to our beer. And very very rarely, especially these days, do we have to kind of dump anything or uh, in barrel. Like you know, um, it's kind of you know it's kind of got its own consistency, even though it's variable. Um. I was going to ask Costa, but, but you might be able to help with this question too. A lot of your beers don't actually display a distinct amount of Britannomyces as some others do. And an example would be the Tilquin that I've just annihilated. Um, is, 
is that how do you guys manage that? How do you guys make sure that the it, it, it's, um, it doesn't feel like it's part of the La Serene experience? Is that is would that be true too? That's the other part. Um, the look, I mean, we're, we're we're massive Brett fans at La Serene. Like we love Brett, uh, and I think if you did uh, like an analysis on our beers, I think you find most of our beers do have Brett in them, but. Uh, to varying degrees. Uh, and I think we, but with our wild saison, for example, that's a great example where we, we've intentionally introduced a native or two native um, strands of, of Britannomyces into, the, into the, the, the beer. I'm not sure if everyone's tried the wild saison. We're not on the list tonight, but uh, that's a great example of, a, of one of our really Brett four beers. Um, and then it comes down to barrels and... <laughs> So some some barrels just give us that you know that that Brett expression. Some uh, some don't. So, and that's one of the fun parts of blending. Uh, you know, we um, we look at barrels, we find barrels um, that have different expressions and and use them together. I'm trying to get Costa back on. I was going to say we've got some uh, we've got some audio coming through there of. Uh notification so it sounds like cost is trying to find his way back into the chat and yeah he just he just sent me a message saying he ran out of battery <laughs> <laughs> oh isn't that isn't that kind of funny in the world we live in at the moment where we're doing these zoom chats and you know that's the world that we live in if you run out of battery you run out of battery there's not exactly yeah. a hell of a lot yeah. you can do about it i mean he like uh, yeah and he obviously didn't have a, an ex- a cord with him um but that, that's all good so uh, we've got another question from one of our listeners. So I, I think we'll, uh, we'll open up to Barney who will unmute himself and ask his question. And uh, hopefully, Will, you'll be able to answer that question. Go ahead, Barney. Um, yeah, so I recently, recently watched a, an amazing interview with um, Jeffrey Stuffings from Jester King. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was actually supposed to be there a couple of weeks ago. Had not all this happened, but that's another story. But anyway, he... Um, <laughs> He spoke about the amount of beers that they had to dump in their first few years and just the teething issues around brewing wild ales and spontaneous fermentation beers. Just wondering if you had similar experiences in the first Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, look, I came on five and a half years ago, but like Costa re- reminds me on a regular basis uh, when, you know, when, you know, we're in a stage now where we barely dump anything um, and really it's a very rare occurrence for that to happen. But back in the, you know, the initial stages of Costa's barrel program 10 years ago, um, I think he, yeah, he, he used to say he used to dump more beer than he released. Uh, and it was all about kind of that learning curve and going, okay, well, this is not working. But, I, you know, I only want to put a beer out to market that I'm happy with. So he, he dumped a lot of beer. So very, very similar. And um, yeah, we love we love Jester King. Uh, we've had I don't know if everyone's tried the um, the collaboration we did with them, um, but we've had told it all. Yeah, over the years we've had um, they, they've been a bit of a uh, yeah we've been good friends with them for for a number of years, and they they came to well Costa originally went to um, uh, Austin, Texas, and and visited their brewery oh like maybe two thousand sixteen. Um, and did a collaboration brew with them and um, spent a bit of time with their family. And uh, then two years later, 2018, they came to Melbourne and stayed with us and we did another collaboration with them. 
which is our beer with Jeff, which some of you may, may or may not have. Um, so there's a real media minds there. I think um, they come from a, a similar place. I mean, in that kind of American style, um, which is a little bit more controlled, I think. I think that they like to control things a little bit more than, than we do. Um, but we love what they do. And they're, yeah, they're really, really interesting brewery out of the States. Um, so I definitely recommend trying the beer with Jeff because that's such a, such a great example of uh, an extended oak ripened beer. Um, and combining their, I don't know, Jeff told me he, he brought their house yeast through customs in uh, beer bottles. And uh, had to, they were like, they had to explain to them what, what it was. And he just said, oh, it's just beer. And they're like, oh, okay. But it was his house yeast. So we, we kind of combined both of our house yeasts together um, and then did like an open ferment and then barrel aged that for a number of, well, for this example, I think it was almost two years. Um, so Beer with Jeff is, yeah, Beer with Jeff is great. It's a, it's a lovely beer, but, but they're a great crew. And I hope they're doing all right because I know that they're, um, there's a state in, in, in Austin, Texas is such a big part of their, their experience, you know, their brewing experience. And I know that's closed down at the moment. So I hope those guys are, are doing okay. One very quick question as we move to sort of wrapping things up, but from another of our listeners was the Jeff, do you reckon that's one to tuck away for a, a little while or one oh, Jeff. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it comes back to what we were saying before. I think, I mean, that, that beer does have potential to cellar quite well. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of different, um, uh, you know, complex microorganisms in there that are going to keep that beer alive for a long time in the right environment. But at the end of the day, it's good to go. Like, there's so much work's gone into that beer. Like, it's a, it's a two-year-old beer. Uh, it's been in barrel for a long time. Uh, it's been bottle conditioning for a long time. I, I would say drink it now, but if you want to sell it, it would be it would be interesting. You know, it would, would it, but in the right conditions. <laughs> Just don't <laughs> don't leave it out in the front porch. But um, yeah, I think I think um, with all, like as Costa was saying with all our beers um, and the way I approach drinking our beers is they're, they're kind of the best when when we release them. Like, you know, we can't, we put the work in. So, so. And are, the, are the right conditions sort of normal cellar conditions or is there something a little bit different you'd suggest for a beer, say, over a wine? If well, cellar, cellar conditions, if you want them to age, because, um, you know, if you put them in the fridge, uh, they're going to really close down. So, uh, which is also fine. So, I mean, I, I store, I don't have uh, a cellar in my apartment. So I, I use a little bar fridge and, um, and that kind of allows me to kind of somewhat sell the beers for, for a while. But, but if, if you have an actual cellar at that kind of 12 to 14, you know, 12 degrees to 14 degrees, that's great because that's going to give you some actual cellaring potential. Um, but not for too long, guys. Like seriously, like maybe, maybe 12, 12 months, two years at the most. Uh, I mean, we've, we've had some beers that are five, six years plus that we've drawn out of our, our museum stock, which has been really exciting, but it doesn't always work out. Like sometimes it really works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, so the best advice is to, um, especially with our beers is, you know, we've, we've put a lot of, a lot of time in, um, just buy them and drink them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I reckon that just about wraps up all the questions from listeners, but 
you don't get to come on the call room without getting asked, you know, one famous question. Okay. Is very sensibly run away. Which, what's the strangest or funniest thing you've ever seen in a call room or, you know, in a brewery failing that? You know, everyone's got one of those stories where they're working behind the bar and we're invited out to the call room to see something untoward. Um, oh God, I worked in, I worked in bars for about 12 years. So I've got, I, I mean, how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> your top two. Um, Everyone always goes with a nice one first and then we laugh tentatively and then you go a little bit more shocking. So let's see, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's quite a few. Um, I mean, the <laughs> obvious one, the obvious one is the, uh, uh, I've, I've caught people having loving relations. Um, temperature was the cool room set up. In, in the cool That's the polite one. I'm not sure we've had that one before, David, have we? Really? Yeah. We haven't had... I've, I could have let you in on one of those. Oh, did, oh yes. I'm a famous one. No, I just, the the shark. Shark. <laughs> I, I just did the shark. Yeah, me and the shark. Um, probably, yeah, I don't know. I mean, one of the most shocking ones, and this was just outside of the cool room, was uh, I used to work at a venue when I first moved to Melbourne about 15 years ago uh, called Big Mouth in St Kilda. Uh, yeah. big mouth. Yep. Um, and there was uh, oh my god it was terrifying there was uh, <laughs> a, a group of um, like these group of rugby guys that came in they were like on tour and they got so drunk and they started fighting everyone uh, and some of the security guards tried to bring them out the back past the cool room to the stairs and knocked over one of the gas cylinders and it actually knocked off the gas the, the top of the gas cylinder and rocketed around oh. like, a, like a rocket like it was like a rocket um, <laughs> that was one of the most terrifying <laughs> that, that, that's, a ni- that's a nightmare for people who work in 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 like tap r- in keg rooms and stuff that, that cylinder's gonna fall off and the top valve is gonna go off and that thing will just it was a it was a concrete it was a concrete stairwell that went down to the street but it oh, was crazy. And the security guards were trying to take them out of way <laughs> and and literally this this gas cylinder fell down this very steep concrete drop and just the top just snapped off and it just i've never seen anything like it it was uh I, it's I'm, I'm glad that no one died <laughs> you seem to have a bit of a run at the moment, David, with people telling stories about things exploding or gas cylinders getting or kegs or getting themselves. A lot of things explode. That's why insurance hubs is as high as it is. I feel like the next the next episode of the core room is going to be all about things exploding. <laughs> Moving things towards wrapping up, <laughs> and and probably if you're listening to the podcast version of this. There'll be a little jump. You've just missed three and a half hours, <laughs> which is probably the most legally unacceptable. I've never had to sort of say, for legal reasons, we should make sure that never goes to air. So <laughs> This is going to be the longest podcast we've ever done, David. <laughs> it's already at two hours. And I was going to say, you know, the, the, what goes out will be two hours. The one we've listened to here, thanks to Warren, is five and a half hours. We'll um, just beep it all. We'll just go beep. Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah. Well, lucky, lucky Costa's not here, otherwise it would go for another, another hour. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, let me wrap things up. One of the great things about being part of... Thank you for people who are commenting as we go along. I'm amused by that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
one of the great things about being part of our virtual Meet the Brewers is that you do get to hang around at the end where normally Warren regales us with these stories and so we don't include them in the podcast. <laughs> genuinely, that's part of the fun bit. If, you, uh, if you've enjoyed tonight and you've listened to us as a podcast, do try and join us on a Thursday Night Live for one of those ones that I've mentioned, like Nomad Next Week or Blackman's The Week After. More importantly, uh, thank you to the good people of La Serene tonight. We'll... Thank you. You're here and online. We didn't even get to talk about the Flemkin Bowls Club and the first time we ever met. No, we didn't, did we? No, that was... That was a whole yeah, other so podcast. Many, so many moons ago. But um, a good, a good day. It was a good day. The sun was out. We were talking Saison. Everything was good. It was a summer Saison, September silliness or whatever I used to call those. Yeah. But, because that's what the Flemkin Bowls Club community wanted was Saison. <laughs> it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it was what Oliver wanted. Yeah, I got that. Um, thank you genuinely for spending hours with us tonight. I think I'd sort of said 40 or 50 minutes initially, and you've been very patient. Costa clearly just wasn't patient, so feel free to tee off on him. He'll wait. He won't listen into the podcast. Anything you want to say about him? Um, just that he, uh, unfortunately, doesn't understand computers. Uh, <laughs> I apologise to all the, the very excited and... Um, keen listeners out there that, that want to hear him speak, but he, he doesn't understand computers. Uh, but he does understand beer, which is good. So l- luckily he understands beer. Uh, and look, you know, we wouldn't be, um, he wouldn't be doing this, the whole wild brewing thing if it wasn't to make great tasting beer. I think that's a really important thing with, with making wild beers is it's not, it's not just a, a choice you make lightly. It's something that the end result has to be, I mean, there's so much time and effort and, and complexity that goes into making wild beer. And if, this, if the end product isn't, isn't delicious and tasty and, uh, and want, wants you to come back for more, then there's, then there's no point. So uh, I think that's what Costa might say. Yeah. Well, look, thank you again. Uh, please enjoy and be part of Lasserine's social media feeds. Rate and review the podcast if you haven't already and um, tune in next week and every other week for these exciting events. Thank you for everyone who's joined us in the Zoom room for the first time live. There's some new faces and um, feel free to stick around, Zoom people. You can get to unmute yourselves and I don't know whether Will... Will's been sitting there for two hours. <laughs> might need to go to the bathroom or recurate the... Will, yeah. Like, you know, whatever he needs to do. But thank you all for being a part of it and, and sit around and be part of it. Thanks for joining everyone. It's yeah, it's good to see questions and I hope you enjoyed it. And the beers more. I hope you enjoyed the beers. Cheers guys. Hey there, Cool Room listeners. We've got a little ad for you. No, we're not asking for money so that you can advertise quality mattresses, razors or any of those other sort of things that seem to get advertised on podcasts. What we're looking for is other fun podcasts that would like to share a 30-second ad with our listeners, letting everyone know why they're so great, and in return, letting us share a 30-second ad for The Cool Room. We know that right now there's a whole lot of people who are looking for fun new podcasts to help them while away their isolation hours, so if you've got something to share, drop us a line via our Facebook or Instagram accounts. Right, ad over.